Hello and welcome to the Back Nine Report. We go live every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and check in on the world of golf to bring you the latest news, insights, analysis, interviews, recaps, previews, and we cover anything and everything golf. If it happened in golf, we have it for you. My name is Carlos Torres. Every week, you know that Fred Alvader is here with me. Sometimes, Kieran Clark, we have to bring him in, and he's here, but you know why? It's because today we're going to bring to you our long-awaited top 10 stories of the year for this year 2019 we've gathered what we consider were those crushing heart-stopping press stop the presses news that happened this year in golf so we're going to bring in as usual first kieran clark the european golf guru how are you kieran welcome welcome again well thank you carlos and obviously a very merry christmas happy holidays Season's greetings to all the listeners and, of course, yourself and Fred. Uh, obviously, it's that time of year once again. It's hard to believe the year, the decade indeed, is very nearly at an end. But there is so much to reflect upon. Obviously, we ended the year in style. 2019 was a, a stunning year for golf across the board. Fascinating. We had brilliance. We had uh, incredible stories, redemption stories, new players emerging, legends of the game being reborn. We had plenty of controversy as well throughout the year and lots of questions to answer as we enter 2020 and I guess we can call the next decade the 20s. And funnily enough, just before we progress, Carlos, I did actually go back and listen to a little bit of last year's end-of-year recap show just to kind of compare what happened to what we predicted. And surprise, surprise, Fred got everything wrong, but that's aside. I'm sure tonight. <laughs> that's no I'm surprise. Sure, I'm sure tonight Fred's predictions and thoughts for the new year will be stunningly accurate. So pressure's on, Fred. <laughs> How can I follow that's that up? I, mean, I, I don't have anything to counter that. So. <laughs> <laughs> That was good. Okay. Have a nice holiday, folks. Nice talking to you. See you next year, Fred. Yeah. So, Fred, how are you this week? Well, it's hard to beat that. You know, uh, that's quite an intro right there. But you're probably right, Kieran. I I try not to go back and listen to that stuff because I don't want to see how stupid I really sound. But um, you know, it's it's been a, it's been a fantastic year. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about, and you know, uh, Kieran brought up a really good point there. It's the end of the 20s. Just think, it was 20 years ago that Tiger was winning three majors and then winning the fourth one in consecutive the next year at the Masters for his Tiger Slam. 20 years ago, and we still got Tiger winning majors in 2019 maybe looking like he's going to win a few more and actually catch Jack Nicklaus. So I know we're going to talk about that a little bit, so I won't, I won't spoil it anymore, but uh, uh, turn it back to you, Carlos. All right. So let's start with the weekend backspin because there was a, an event worth mentioning that happened this past weekend, actually ended up on Saturday, and that was the President's Cup, where the US, team, the US team, especially USA's player captain Tiger Woods, we were talking about, went 3-0 and at Royal Melbourne as the USA came back from 
being down 10 to 8 to win the President's Cup for the eighth time in a row, Woods beat Abraham Anser in the singles in the first game out to win his third match of the week, having won his four-ball and four-some games with Justin Thomas on Thursday and Friday. He then it's the second time that uh, Woods has gone undefeated in the President's Cup. He went 5-0 in 2009, and he has now leapfrogged Phil Mickelson with the most match wins in tournament's history with 27. So, you know, the 15-time Majors winner side won the singles 8-4 to for a 16-14 to final score with Matt Kuchar clinching the winning half point against Louis Heisen. And we got to say that Ernie Els Internationals gave a great fight in what was one of the most dramatic and closely fought President's Cups yet. However, the USA still could not be beaten and now take an 11-1-1 lead after 13 matches. And uh, Kieran, I'm going to bring you first here on the recap of this. Uh, the internationals, Ernie L said that he had a uh, a plan. That plan started to work well during the team stages, but uh, maybe that final stage on Friday really uh, that comeback that could have been could have put the team away maybe for good for the internationals. Uh, the Americans won back that last session and brought them back into the game just that make that a two-point deficit even instead of a 4-1 and of course the strength of the American team was on the singles on the individual play and that's what it showed they won eight out of 12 so they went eight out eight and four they went eight and four and one but it was a close fought um, it was very entertaining because it was close so what's your take on the President's Cup? Well, I think there are several storylines to come from the President's Cup this year. Uh, one, it was tremendous viewing. I mean, I think that was partly and perhaps largely uh, due to the golf course. You know, Royal Melbourne was is an incredible layout. Uh, it's a wonderful golf course, one of the truly great ones in the world. And it's something a little bit different to what we see week in, week out, particularly on the PGA Tour. It tested the players in different ways, you know, the strategy of it, the precision required. And, and that offered a great stage for these players to go and play. So it was fun to watch it from that perspective, and we saw some fantastic golf. But I think ultimately, you know, you know, we, we actually saw the true Captain America crowned, and that was Tiger Woods. Um, his performance as a player was just stunning. Uh, and really, I think this golf course, being the, the strategic, the precise, the kind of classic layout that it is, that lends itself to Tiger's game, particularly his iron play. And he was just inspired, uh, leading from the front and really keeping his team with a chance of winning. And he established that platform as a player. And the, the rest of the guys caught up eventually. And, of course, uh, you led to that you know, decisive singles performance and obviously taking the cup narrowly at the end. Um, it's funny, you know, I, I go back to the, the, the session on Friday, uh, the foursome se- session there, where at one point, obviously the first session on Thursday, the internationals were 4-1 up, had dominated uh, one of their best performances ever in a particular session in the history of this event. On Friday, it looked potentially similar. At one point, the international team were projected to be 9-1 ahead, which would be just a, a staggering, unbelievable oh. score. Uh, but the Americans somehow turned three of those matches around uh, on the last hole. Uh, winning two of them and having the other one and that kept them in it 
and I think that was a, a really important moment as the match progressed into Saturday. You know, obviously it was still tightly contested, but it just gave the Americans that chance to get into contention going into the final day. And as you touched on, Carlos, the same thing happened in the afternoon on Saturday where those final holes, the Americans were able to just claw back, take wins in the last two holes, and, and that was a crushing blow to the internationals who at one point, I mean, potentially, I say, were on a Friday afternoon, could have been 9-1 ahead. At the end of Saturday, they were only 10-8. Um, so they only gained you know, one point more than what they were projected to do at one point on the second session. Uh, so the Americans showed a lot of fighting spirit uh, to keep in, in, into contention. They had a very slow start, whether that was down to you know, jet lag, the long journey, uh, the golf course, or perhaps just to credit the international team, they played very well in those early sessions. But the Americans got better as time went on, showed a lot of character to win matches tight, and that kept them in the mix going into Sunday. And, you know, that two-point lead was extremely vulnerable for the international team, as I think it's fair to say that to a man, going through the 12 players, the American team was stronger uh, overall, and I think that did show itself on, on Sunday. That said, I think Ernie Els, you know, he brought a fascinating approach to it, very analytical. He had his plan that was based on stats. He stuck to it all the way through, um, and for a while it was working extremely well. And I think there were some very encouraging performances too from the international team. I think Sun JM is a, a potential star in the making going forward. He's one player to watch, I think, in the new year. Um, so there were some good performances there. They kept it competitive. Ernie Els worked very hard to try and build up a team unity and that sense of community, which is difficult when you have such a disparate group of players from all around the world. Uh, the Australian fans obviously got behind the team. Um, so there was a good atmosphere to it. And it was, you know, team match play, which is always fun to watch on a fantastic, truly great golf course. So, you know, the President's Cup, you know, sometimes feels a little bit of a sideshow, a little bit of an exhibition. Uh, but you know what? That's not necessarily a bad thing. I think this was actually a really entertaining exhibition. And it capped off, you know, a truly stunning, resurgent, incredible year for Captain America himself. And no, it's not Patrick Reed. Tiger Woods, he's a true Captain America. And Fred, uh, let me comment this. I mean, there have been far too many times when the President's Cup has morally closely resembled like a Harlem Globetrotters game with the international team playing the part of the Washington Generals. You knew they were going to lose and be embarrassed just before the opening tip-off. Unlike the Ryder Cup, this team event had been boring and meaningless on too many occasions because it simply hasn't been competitive. I mean, it carry all the intensity and drama of a pie-eating contest. I mean, war by the shore, this has been more like Minder in the Meadow. But this time, things were different. This time, it felt real, as if it mattered. Sure, I mean, the Americans still won, but nothing was assured until late on Sunday. Two years ago, the Americans could have played the singles with half sets and lightly still earned the four points necessary to win the cup. But it wasn't this time, all there, week, where the momentum shifts aplenty. So they were afraid some good golf and some not so good. It's what you expect in match play over the course of four days. And it's what it makes it interesting. So uh, it finally seems like the President's Cup is starting to, at least this year, start to look legit. Yeah, this obviously was one of the most entertaining President's Cup yet. And the, uh, the U.S. team tried to lose, um, you know, with Patrick Reed and some of the other stuff that uh, 
that was going on. But um, they did reverse their fortunes on Sunday, winning eight out of the 12 points to win the overall cup, 16-14. And I think I predicted 18-12, so I was just a little bit off there again, Kieran, but, uh, but they still won. Um, you know, Ernie's system worked almost to perfection, you know, kind of mix and match uh, depending on uh, what the numbers say. Um, I was really surprised with the pairings. They were nothing like what we had talked about, Carlos, last week for Ernie. Um, we, we were pretty good on the pairings for the American team, but, but uh, the, uh, the, the internationals, Ernie had a little different plan, and it worked quite well, actually, especially in team matches on Thursday and Friday. Uh, there's lots of storylines, and I agree with Kieran. Royal Melbourne, you know, probably was the best storyline of all. I can't get enough of watching that golf course and watching the players try to navigate their way around there. It was so much fun. I mean, if you're just off just a little bit, that ball may go anywhere. Um, it, w- it was really great, great fun. Um, but if you had a great shot, it was it could be rewarded, too. So. We saw a lot of great shots during the President's Cup, you know, knocking it close to the hole with, for tap-ins. So a lot of good up and downs. And I think that's the, that is the genius of McKenzie. You really do get your whole golf game tested, even if you're one of the best players in the world. It's just not all wedges uh, into the greens and, and make a few putts. You've you got to be able to hit everything. To everyone's surprise, the Internationals won four of the first five matches on Thursday, take the 4-1 lead. Uh, they would go on to lead clear into the – through all the matches, clear into the final single. They still had the two-up lead uh, after Saturday night, but uh, just couldn't quite hold on to it once that singles hit. Abram answer, wow, what a great week for him. Uh, Patrick Reed, not so much. Even uh, even his caddy got uh, got kicked out uh, for shoving a fan after he had kind of accosted Reed, which I'm a little bit surprised about, to be quite honest with you, because the fan was clearly out of bounds, and it was almost like he was – coming forward or charging Reed, and the caddy was just kind of standing up and, and hold, you know, and evidently pushing with spirit as Bill's beer, and they kicked the caddy out. I, who, who, I don't get that one, but, but uh, because it was Reed, it just added to the overall drama. DeChambeau, Carlos, you called it, uh, couldn't be paired with anybody, only played one team match and then played one single match, but he did end up with a half point against Hadwin on Sunday. He played hard, though. It was fun. It was fun to watch him. He was really working hard. Um, Tiger Woods. You know, if Royal Melbourne was the biggest story, uh, Tiger just played fantastic. Uh, with Justin Thomas on Thursday and Friday, winning matches, winning points, and then on Sunday taking down Answer, who was really, um, you know, the best player for the week for the international team. He was emotional um, at the end, which was really unusual for him. He stayed out of Saturday's sessions. Uh, it was cold, and I think that was probably a wise decision. No reason for him playing back-to-back. You know, and he he spun it to the way, well, I trust my players. I trust my players. I put them out there. I trust them. Well, Tiger didn't want to play. It was too cold. And and so that was a good thing. Uh, The the guys came through for him. Uh, But the emotion that he showed after the win on Sunday was something kind of unprecedented. Um, This was, uh, you know, we've seen him emotional after big wins with Stevie Williams and with his father. But for a Team Cup event, this was far removed from what we have seen in the past from, from Tiger. This win was very special for him. He counted on the team to come back, and they did. Everyone on the U.S. squad had at least a half point on Sunday, except for Justin Thomas, who played extremely well in the team matches, and Gary Woodland, who, who really did play well as well. So, you know, they just couldn't quite get it done on Sunday. In the first nine matches out, the U.S. 
seven points, only losing one match. Uh, Thomas was great with Tiger over the first two days. He won with Ricky on Saturday. Uh, Xander and Cantley were both very good, won both foursome matches. They lost both four balls, but both won their singles matches on Sunday. Um, many of the matches were very close. And it was, it was really, I mean, it was a little bit up in the air till late on Sunday. And, Carlos, we were texting back and forth a little bit. And, and it, was, it was just really good drama. It was good theater. It, it was fun to watch. But my takeaway from this year's President's Cup, I want Ernie and Tiger to both be captains next time. I thought they did it. Ernie especially did a great job with his younger players, instilling confidence, imparting his knowledge of Royal Melbourne. The internationals didn't get the win, but this was very competitive. And it appears the international team with the young guys they have now are going to be a serious competitor for the U.S. going forward in the President's Cup, guys. Yeah, Ernie, also, I have to give my tip my hat off to him. He gave it a hell of a go, getting his player to accept that ultimate rule and game plan that he proposed them, play this way and we'll have a chance. He told them, backing up his plea with analytics, uh, individual players like Sanjay Im, Abraham Anser, and C.T. Pan, who really not exactly household names at the start of the week, impressed with their talent. Im is only 21. The others are just 28, so they, they look like the future as veterans like Adam Scott, Louis Heisen, Mark Lishman start to fade out. Looking forward, the Americans will still be difficult to beat. They will always bring a strong team that will assuredly be the favorites. But we saw how important this was to them when they were that boozy buzz ride video from them saying that we are the champions going back. Uh, will this mark the start of a new era for the President's Cup? One year really doesn't make a trend, but in some ways it feels as if the international team seems more like a genuine entity and a lot of credit has to go to Ernie Els and the job that he did that can make only for a better event. So here's to 2021 at Well Hallow. And I bet we can't wait now to see the Ryder cup next year. So with that, we're going to move on and we're going to have some chip shots. We're going to start our top stories of 2019, but we have 10, but they, we have, we're going to give you one each of us that we think are not in that top 10 that should have been also, it's worth mentioning. Those are our honorable mentions. Kieran, tell us which is yours. Well, I think uh, for many reasons, one of the, the great scenes of this year, obviously Tiger winning the Masters was number one, and we'll talk about that later on, as you would expect, but I think very close behind that were the scenes when Shane Lowry uh, won the Open Championship at Royal Portrush. Uh, the championship returned to Northern Ireland and Portrush for the first time since 1951. Huge event, uh, historic. Uh, Northern Ireland's had many problems through the years, and this was a, a symbol of perhaps you know better times ahead and, and really an indication of how much progress uh, that nation has made over the past few decades. And it was a wonderful celebration of golf. First of all, Royal Portrush is a tremendous golf course that instantly ranks among the finest on the, the open rota and you know a huge money maker for the for the area. I think it was announced there was a, a hundred million pound boost for the local economy. So a huge business for all the people there. And it had the second highest attendance in the Open's history. A huge crowds all throughout the week. The practice days were sold out, the tournament days were sold out. It was just an incredible atmosphere despite uh, some questionable weather at times. Uh, despite that, the, the, condi the conditions um, were difficult, but the crowd stayed and were, were 
you know, really supportive of, of the players, and particularly Shane Larry, who does come from the, the Republic of Ireland, so there are some complexities with that. But for golf, Ireland is united, and the crowd were so much behind him, and he produced a stunning performance to win by six shots, particularly the round on the Saturday, the 63 shot there was one of the best rounds of the year, uh, might even be the best round of the year. And he strolled to victory on the back nine at Port Rush and secured his first major. And it came a year, you know, the, the previous year at Carnoustie, Larry had missed the cut, was in the car park uh, crying. His career was kind of on a downward spiral. He's rebounded brilliantly this year. And to win the Open at Port Rush was a massive, massive achievement and one that will be will, will go down in history. So Royal Port Rush Carlos was a, was a real highlight of this year. I think this Open was one of the most special for many reasons. Not necessarily in terms of the excitement of the of the finish or the, the final round, but just in terms of the, the venue, the atmosphere, the scenes that we saw. Um, it's something that we won't forget for a long time. And we're certainly going to see Royal Port Rush back very soon for the Open Championship. It took 68 years to come back, and it's fair to say it won't take that long until next time. <laughs> I I love that, that story, especially Shane Lowry, who you can call the honest champion. He's true to himself, and just what he said to everybody, uh, you know, he was up by four, but then he admitted what fans everybody everywhere knew to be true. He said, I'm essing myself, I'm not going to say a word. But everybody laughed when he said that. So uh, that was just, I just cracked when he said it. But anyway, Fred, what's your, your, your story for your honorable mention? Well, something that would, uh, we're not going to talk about tonight, which I think is one of the most important events uh, that's happened in golf for a long, long, long time, was the uh, Augusta National Women's Amateur that was held uh, just ahead of the uh, Masters in April. Um, with uh, Maria Fossey and Jennifer Kupko battling over uh, Augusta National on Saturday for the uh, final uh, 18 holes, and and Kupko coming coming uh, down the back nine, making the eagle and, and making putts and just blitzing. I think she shot 30 on that back nine. Um, that was uh, just phenomenal, phenomenal stuff. I loved watching that. I like everything about it. Uh, hats off to Augusta National for getting that thing going. And I uh, can't wait to see that again in 2020. Uh, I really, guys, I really, really believe it's one of the most important events in women's golf that's happened for a long, long time. Yeah, definitely. That was an opportunity long overdue. And uh, it's just the beginning of what's going to happen. And uh, I'm going to call one. I know it's, it wasn't in anybody's radar, but it's just something that is important to me. I think it's something I've been saying a lot. And I, I, I'm going to have to say that Eduardo Molinari is my player of the year. Sorry, Tiger. I mean, I started paying the Italian a little more respect when he said he had enough of slow play. Calling out slow play, finally, it's starting to take action. <laughs> His actions have forced the European tour to take action on those who impersonate snails. I mean, he, he lost it after taking five and a half hours in the trophy has in the second. He highlighted the issue on Twitter, follow it up by posting a photo, and this was my favorite, of a list of Euro tour players who picked up bad times this year. Oh, my God, what did he do? Loved it. As a member of the European Tours Tournament Committee, the Italian helped instigate plans to speed up the snails. From next season, 
the Euro Tour will do just that. So thank you, Eduardo, or should I say Bellissimo, Bellissimo, Eduardo. So with that, that was my honorable mention. Love it, loved it, loved it, loved it. Come on, stop slow play. With that, we wrap up the chip shots, and now we go into what you are all expecting from us. It's the 2019 Top News in Golf. And uh, I'm going to be presenting them, and I'm going to give our guys the pleasure of taking all their time they want. Well, they know how much time we have. But anyway, I have the control. So. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we already gave away, thanks to Kieran, who, which one is the first. So you all have to wait until we say about Tiger. He already said it. Yes, I know. But anyway, yeah, I got a text here from a friend. I already know which one is number one. Yeah, I know. But it, <laughs> It's no surprise. No surprise there 10. at all. No, yeah, I, I think they, everybody knew. Why, why would even do But anyway, number 10. Wow, that was a long snare drum. Anyway, <laughs> the effects of the new California rules and amateur golf. And uh, this is important because the California uh, Congress passed a law that's going to make it, it's going to take effect in a few years, but it's letting everybody know look, from 2023 on, any amateur player in college, NCAA cannot sanction them because of the usage of their image, uh, earning money for the usage of their image for commercial purposes. Uh, That has inspired uh, some of the longstanding, like the RNA and the USGA, to start taking attention to that because we've known that there have been controversy by athletes supposedly being paid or taking uh, part of some compensation so, Fred, I'm going to give you the first take at this one. Uh, what's your take on the effects of the new California rules on amateur golf? Well, we're going to continue to follow this story, uh, and it is unfolding in front of us as we, as we go. But this single piece of legislation will drastically change amateur sports in this country as well as around the world. We're already seeing the USGA and the RNA announcing that they would study what defines an amateur, and it is certain that rules will be changed to comply with this California legislation. College golf has become more followed in recent years with Golf Channel offering the NCAA championships and a couple other major college tournaments televised. Well, the kids at top colleges will be able to, you know, accept sponsorships from big equipment companies and hire agents to get them sponsored deals, you know, you know, Footjoy or Titleist or whatever. You know, are the kids going to be able to stay in college longer because of this? Are these top kids are making a few bucks? Is this going to be a good thing? Well, I'm not really sure right now. I, I don't have all the answers. I only know that amateur athletics are changing rapidly. And it's because of this landmark legislation in California. It's going to also affect, you know, major college football and some of the other sports, major college basketball. But uh, golf, I think, uh, is going to see the biggest, um, if you want to call it benefit, or the biggest changes in this, because the USGA and the RNA are such watchdogs on amateur athletics and what 
see what constitutes an amateur and who can play in their amateur championships. So uh, there's a lot more coming down on this, Carlos. We're going to continue to follow next year, I'm sure. But uh, this is a landmark legislation from California, and it's, it's affecting a lot of stuff. Kieran, what's your take on that? Yeah, it's certainly a story that I think we'll probably be covering for years to come. Uh, this legislation is called the Fair Pay-to-Play Act, and it should come into effect uh, in 2023. So we're still a little bit away from this becoming a reality. Uh, and ultimately what that really means is it allows college athletes uh, to att- who attend both public and private colleges uh, in the state uh, to profit from the use of their name, their image, and their likeness. Uh, and this is going to be, I think, a, a real, and all, all sports will be affected by this. Obviously, the, the higher uh, profile sports uh, like football or basketball, which of course are huge things in America. I mean, college football is a massive cultural event, and, and it's something that I, I, you know, people will want to try and protect in whatever way they can. So it's, it's, it's a really interesting story where we don't quite know how it's going to develop and how it's going to affect you know, all sports. And of course, we're talking about golf specifically. Uh, you know, as Fred touched on there, uh, the USGA and the RNA have recently confirmed that they are looking at it and they're unveiling plans at some point uh, to modernize uh, what constitutes amateur status. Uh, we might see that come out by 2021. Obviously, we'll touch on this later on, but we've seen the RNA and the USGA change the rules of golf in the past year, uh, trying to modernize that. Uh, and now they're trying to modernize you know, the amateur status to reflect this. Obviously, amateur status is something that I think in, in golf is, is sacrosanct. You know, it should be protected um, in whatever way it can be. You know, golf's amateur status as it stands, you know, those rules prohibit amateur golfers from receiving payment of compensation directly or indirectly for promoting or selling you know, anything from their, you know, based on their golf ability or their, or, their, or their reputation in the game. So they can't make money from themselves, in other words. And... That might change in some degree or another. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, from my perspective, and this is just looking at the information that we have now, I feel that it potentially blurs the line between amateur and professional golf. Uh, and I don't necessarily think that's a positive thing. Uh, I think there should always be a clear difference between the two. Um, but again, we'll have to wait and see how this develops. And, and in terms of other sports, uh, the NCAA uh, have also announced their plans to actually review you know, what constitutes amateur status in many ways, too. So they're looking at it as well. Uh, golf's governing bodies are looking at it, too. You know, will it damage college sport? You know, traditionalists will certainly argue that it might do. Uh, say it's a huge cultural thing in America. But elsewhere, in terms of the amateur status of the game, uh, it could have implications, too. So this is certainly a story where you know, the other stories here, we more or less have the answers to tonight, you know, because they're stories that really were impacted this year. This one is a story of the future, and uh, as we move into a new decade, this is going to be, you know, maybe this change was inevitable. Uh, with the money going around, you know, kind of the, 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 way, the way capitalism works and players trying to make money out of their ability, you know, somewhat understandably so. Uh, but at the same time, from a, from a traditional point of view, I don't like the idea in principle of the line between amateur and professional golf being blurred. And from what I see at the moment, that's a possibility. But as Fred touched on, the governing bodies are on top of it and we'll have to wait and see what they come up with. So this is one to certainly watch going into the new year and beyond. You touched on a great point. This is a, a news for the future that was brought up this, this year. But uh, like you, I have to agree, I 
and this is, has always been my take, is that amateur line. It's really start to get blurry. And uh, you start, even though the people says the general belief is that football and basketball here in the States is the, the ones that are going to be most impacted, but what is the worth of a top college athlete in terms of endorsement dollars? Where will it stop? We have seen already uh, the battles for money in other sports. How many companies are willing to invest in them? How many athletes stand to benefit from that opportunity? Uh, the application of the law for college golfers is similarly hard to game out because uh, I don't know how many players will be able to attract interest from businesses in and out of the golf industry. Uh, but non-golf companies would be unlikely to spend significant marketing dollars and collegians whose exposure to the public is limited where college golfers are more likely to be able to profit is by being compensated for participating in summer golf clinics or small deals with golf equipment or apparel manufacturers but again a lot of questions we don't know and like both Fred and, and Kieran have said this is something that we will be talking about more and more since this is going to be in 2023. I think 2020 will bring more clarity to what's going to be starting to happen. Now let's move on to number nine, where sports gambling has become legal in the USA. And of course, golf is also part of that. And they're making their plans to be part of that game. So, uh, Kieran, you get the first shot at this one. Yeah, well, this is a fascinating story uh, from someone from my side of the Atlantic uh, because sports gambling has always been legal in the UK and uh, actually it's a huge part of the culture, uh, perhaps overly so. I mean, you, you, you literally cannot watch a sports event on TV in the UK without seeing a gambling commercial. Uh, they sponsor so many sports, so many events. Uh, you know, leagues are sponsored by gambling companies. You know, teams are sponsored by gambling companies. There's a huge, you know, multi-million dollar business in this country, and you know, in the U.S., we're going to see that develop in the coming years. As I say there was a federal change to the law, making it legal, and since that happened, which was uh, last year, we've seen 18 states who have either made it legal for sports gambling or they've passed the law in that it will become legal in the near future. So that's you know, a significant number of states uh, among that number. Um, so you know, how is this going to affect PGA Tour specifically? And how are they reacting to it? Well, you know, they have already looked at their, their own rules on this. And they've looked at it and they've changed the rule they have. So gambling companies can now be considered official marketing partners for all the tours that are overseen by the PGA Tour, so the PGA Tour champions, the Corn Ferry, etc. Um, you know, and, and tournaments and players can also seek sponsored deals with those companies. Um, so we might end up seeing you know, a major you know, company sponsoring a, a PGA Tour event um, you know, and, and potentially in the future. But in terms of how this affects the fans and how the fans interact with the PGA Tour, this is something that they're looking at and trying to take advantage of. You know, a lot of other sports, they make a huge deal, huge deal out of betting, and certainly fantasy sports are a big thing. We know that certainly in American football and all kinds of different sports, it's a big deal. And the PGA Tour is trying to get ahead of the game on this. And you know, Jay Monahan, the PGA Tour's commissioner, uh, said recently that he believes that you know, sports mobile betting, uh, that gives fans a further opportunity to engage with the game. Uh, so that's something they're, they're looking at trying to exploit in some way. So, uh, I 
again, it's a, it's a cultural thing, and it's a, a big change for the U.S. Again, it's, I think it's been inevitable for a long time, as you know, you have underground things that have gone on for years and years and years. So, and obviously, casinos have their special status as well. So, but beyond that, I mean, you know, legalization in this case, you know, it allows regulation. It puts things in a spotlight. It has greater accountability than kind of underground gambling circles. Um, so, having you know more open and honest is perhaps a good thing. Um, but I say, how will it affect the players and on the tour? Well, looking at other sports, so for example, in association football or, or soccer, as you would call it in this country, um, you know they ban all players, coaches, officials, referees, etc., from betting on their sport, irrespective of the match, irrespective of the of the country the game is taking place in, even if it doesn't affect them specifically. Players and officials cannot bet on football or soccer and you know golf you know potentially have to look at something similar to that as well just to ensure that um, everything is above board you know you have to look at the corruption aspect to it as well um, you know so gambling is a, is a it's a natural impulse it's a popular underground thing in, in the US it's hugely popular worldwide where it's legal um, but again you have to be careful whether you're just you're just poking the, the hornet's <laughs> nest and you'll see what the how it's going to, again, this is another developing story where this will probably, you know, as more states legalise sports gambling, it's going to become a bigger issue. How and sorry, yes, no, go Carlos. Yes. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. So I was just going to say, yeah. So again, it's a, a developing story, much like the previous story we covered. Um, I'm not sure what's going to happen, uh, but you know, the PGA Tour clearly see. Uh, opportunity for growth and, and making money, which of course, which is their number one uh, priority in life, and let's be honest, they're very good at it. So they're going to do the same here. But um, yeah, the wider kind of ethical implications of sports gambling, uh, I think, are questionable. Um, it's not something that I personally uh, partake in uh, or necessarily endorse. But you know, it's uh, if managed and, and regulated then it's a, it's a part of life around the world, and there's no reason why it cannot be the same in the U.S. Fred, your take. Well, I'm still having a problem wrapping my gray-haired head around legalized gambling on golf. To see betting windows at golf tournaments uh, probably going to make my head explode. I know a certain segment of the population lives for sports gambling, and the NFL is the biggest reason for this. Something inside me just doesn't want to accept legalized gambling on site at PGA Tour events. I know it's here. I know it's going to be happening. I will not be participating, and I still don't like it. And I know carrying the sports betting uh, in Europe is, is a really big deal. Uh, we see it especially when, uh, when the tour visits for the Open Championship every, every year. They, they always talk about the odds and the punters and all that kind of thing. But uh, to see betting windows and open gambling at the, at PGA Tour events, I, I, I'm, it's going to take a while for me to get used to that, guys. Yeah, I don't like the idea of it being on the course. But let me, let me tell you a little bit. A few things in life are certain, and coming from a gambler from horse racing, which is my, my passion, right? Lots of things are likely. So to power language from a bookie vernacular, here, here are some things that you should know about how legalized sports betting will impact the golf world. One, 
whether you like it or not, it's going to have greater fan engagement because from the NFL to the Kentucky Derby and beyond, I am sure that it will, will – the question is, will it get more people on the course? Maybe, but it, there's little doubt that it will get more people watching. So call it a different way to grow the game. There's going to be obviously more money for the tour because Monaghan already made it clear that the tour planned to profit. So either by selling its shuttling data to gambling interest or uh, revenue for that supposed integrity fee, that surcharge of sorts for helping protect its competitions from shady influences, they're going to make money. There's going to be new ways to watch. I mean, gambling doesn't just drive your interest. It also influences what there is to see. Witnesses all the NFL and college football programming devoted to fantasy play. I mean, it's just new ways that you're going to be watching because the attention is going to be there. You can bet on this. Those guys on Golf Channel won't just be analyzing the Tiger swing. They'll be telling you why Woods should or shouldn't be favorite in, say, a first-round matchup against Jordan Spieth. Uh, it's going to be a lot of things. There's going to be a zillion ways to wager. If you, if you come to see about it in the not-so-distant future, when you drop by the Quickie Mart to buy a lottery ticket, you will also be able to place a wager on who will win the Masters, for example. And don't even get me started on all the options that you will be available on your mobile device. There's also that debate over what kind of wagers should be offered. Uh, yeah, th that kind of action is susceptible to corruption, or at least the perception of it. But fair enough. The question is, once this uh, gets up and running, will the tour have the power to dictate what kind of lines the bookmakers make? Like, okay, is it going to be how many swings this guy is going to get? How many? What's going to be the score? I mean, the sky's the limit of what kind of wagers are going to be. And, of course, with that, a growing chorus of gambling critics is going to come up. Because to hear the heads of various sports leagues tell it, legalization was all but preordained. The inevitable outgrowth of societal shifts. So the argue of legalization will be a good thing because it allows for regulation, which in turn will help give competitions claims. All that is hogwash. That's what the critics say. And with that, I end up the betting on, uh, on the PGA Tour implications. Now, number eight, year of controversies. My God, we had controversies in golf? I can't believe it. Patrick Reed, Sergio Garcia, Matt Kutcher, something happened at the Saudi International. I, I, I was blind. I didn't know that there had something happened. Fred, enlighten us. Well, guys, there's always controversies in golf and all sports in general. That's what makes us watch. Matt Kutcher, Patrick Reed, Sergio Garcia, they were at the top of the naughty list this year. Kutcher has long been one of the most popular players on tour with his constant smile and rapier wit, but his perceived stiffing of a local caddy after winning the Mayakoba in 2018 set off a negative press campaign that certainly surprised him. Was it overblown? Probably. The problem is he didn't handle it very well. He should have quickly sent the guy a few more bucks, and that would have taken care of it. He didn't do that, however, until his sponsors told him to take care of it or they were going to drop him. Is he going to get a renewal of his Skechers deal in the future? Probably. Sergio continues to act like a spoiled brat. Your, your guy, Carlos. Last year at the Saudi event, he attacked a sand bunker that had evidently been the cause of his poor play. He was paid a large appearance last year and agreed to play in Saudi again this year 
for no fee. What a nice guy. That's the way to win back the public opinion. Patrick Reed, what can I say? He just keeps digging a bigger and bigger hole for himself. His brashness has become unbearable. His Captain America moniker has long gone, and his play at this year's President's Cup was a distraction that nearly cost U.S. team the cup. Nice guy Webb Simpson was stuck with him in the team matches until Woods finally had to sit them. Reed showed the captain with a win on Sunday in singles, though. Someone needs to get to this guy and tell him he needs to tone it down a notch. I know he tends to thrive on this stuff, but it's not helping him. It's not helping golf. The Saudi event, it's strictly for PR for the kingdom, and most people are not buying it. The players love to use appearance fees, and even Phil Mickelson will spurn a long-time event in the U.S. to travel to the Middle East to compete this year. Euro Tour events have been paying appearance fees for years with no repercussions, but the fact that Saudi Arabia is one of the most closed societies in the world seems to success suggest a problem for players that go over there. For Keith Pelley on the European Tour, it's a massive win. European Tour gets the top players in the world to play in a Euro Tour event, not in the United States. Keith Pelley is always looking for an edge, and he's got deep pockets in Saudi Arabia to help give it to him. Guys, back to you. Aaron, I am oblivious to this. I I really didn't know. What's what's your take (laughs) on it? (laughs) Well, Well, where do you start? I mean, you have to say that it's been a fantastic year. If, if you're like me and you love a bit of controversy, you, lo- you love negative headlines, you love people you know, humiliating themselves in, in the public, it's been a great year. <laughs> it's been fantastic. And you love people shattering their public perception. You know, you should... Here's a lesson for yourself, kids. Don't have heroes because they always let you down. And if Matt Kuchar was your hero, well, he's let you down this year. In a lot of different ways, and you know, Fred touched on the caddy gate from Mexico. That was just the tip in the iceberg. We had the various efforts to bend the rules; they didn't go down very well. We had actually an incident with fellow guilty party Sergio Garcia at the at the match play, which is very entertaining too. The the the, the putt that wasn't given, uh, gimme gate. So we had that as well. Um, so Matt Kuchar's PR, uh, you know, he couldn't have destroyed it even you know more effectively had he <laughs> attempted to do so deliberately. Actually maybe that was maybe he felt, you know, a New Year's resolution, everyone thinks I'm a really nice guy. How boring I'm is too that? Well let's liked. not be boring. Let's let's try and light you know <laughs> rush up my it image up. a little bit. Yeah, just try and you know, be a be a villain. Being a villain's fun. And certainly a guy that loves being a villain, well I'm not sure he has any other default ability to be otherwise is Patrick Reed, who is the ultimate villain in golf. He's become so, um, and ultimately for very good reason. Um, what happened at the Hero Challenge was obviously a disgrace, but even more than that was his, his response to it, how he thought he was a victim. And of course, the way he doubled down on it uh, at the President's Cup with his uh, re- celebration, reaction uh, w- w- on the green with a putter, gesturing a, a digging motion, uh, was just shameful. And, you know, Patrick Reed is becoming this pariah figure. And ultimately, it's all his own doing. Um, it's something that he has not 
you know, being able to, to change it's a reputation he's had since his college days at Augusta State, where he was maligned with many different accusations uh, as a professional. Obviously, he's had great success winning the Masters. He's kind of rubbed people up the wrong way the whole time. And, you know, Fred touched on, you know, Webb Simpson. I mean, he must have drawn a, a drawn straws or something like that to get the, be his partner. Um, you know, before it was Jordan Spieth who was kind of the Patrick Reed's nanny on the golf course. But, of course, Patrick, you know, threw the toys out the pram on that one and, and just, um, you know, threw poor Jordan under the bus, the bus last year at the Ryder Cup. So Patrick Reed is the villain of every year, uh, but especially this one. Um, so you know, not so much Captain America, who's more of a heroic figure. He's more he's, he's more of a, a comic book villain. And you know what? That's not necessarily a bad thing. Because I always say heroes and villains, and you'll make sport compelling. And, and Patrick Reed is unashamedly on that other side of the spectrum. But elsewhere, you know, we had um, some bizarre stories. We had um, what about Bio Kim on the Korean tour? He was banned for giving a middle finger salute to the crowd. It was a two-year ban, reduced to one. And, you know, obviously that, that that's just laughable. That would even be the case. And what their reasoning behind that was, and this is a, this is a quote, they said that he damaged the dignity of a golfer with an etiquette <laughs> violation and inappropriate behavior. Well, I tell you what, guys, it's very lucky, therefore, that Patrick Reed does not play on the Korean tour. Otherwise, he'd be bad for life. I mean, jeez. Unbelievable. So we have some great stuff. You know, Sergio Garcia, as Fred touched on, I mean, he's he's a 40-year-old man with the mind of a 10-year-old. I mean, he's just uh, it's extraordinary. And you know, at Saudi Arabia, I mean, he, 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 he tried to take you know, breaking new ground almost literally in that first <laughs> event this year where he damaged seven greens. Uh, and then he had that bunker meltdown, just extraordinary behavior. And not for the first time, Sergio has done this. Um, so he's, again, fiery, uh, and, you know, petulant, uh, brilliant player, but just, again, there's some negatives there too. You know, Phil Mickelson, you know, this is a, a general point, and I actually made this point last year on last year's final show for Phil, and he's merely continued the trend. Is it Fred? Uh, sorry, Fred. <laughs> I do apologize, Fred. <laughs> Phil, rather. <laughs> Phil is becoming, you know, beyond parody. He's becoming a, you know, if you, if you, he's having one of the most spectacular midlife crises I've ever seen. I mean, just the whole thing on Twitter and the way he acts and the way, he, just the stuff he does. And the Saudi international thing is just the latest. And this is a deeper point for another topic and another show. But Saudi international, you know, is such a blatant uh, PR move from. Uh, you know, an, an abhorrent uh, regime, um, and uh, not just golf, all sports now are just taking the money with no real conscience behind it. And money's there, guys are going to take it, but at the same time, you have to question the ethics of it all. And you know, even Rory said he turned down the invite to go there next year, um, and he said, you know, there is a morality to it where it's getting to the stage now where these guys just do anything for money. They live in a bubble. They don't seem to be aware of real-world issues or even care about it. And it, I think from a, a public perception point of view, it makes it harder to care about these guys when they will just do anything for money, even something that is so blatantly just a promotional tool for a regime that really should not be supported in any way whatsoever. And your know, golf has an issue with that in various different countries and various different nations, but none quite so blatant as this. And we just seen a, a new ladies European Tour event 
going to be played in the kingdom next year. So this will continue to develop as more money gets pummeled into sport from the Saudi government. Um, we're going to see more of this. Elsewhere we had you know, slow play, as Carlos touched on earlier, Bryson DeChambeau was involved in that. We had the squaring up with Brooks Kepka at the practice Kepka. One of his many, one of his finest qualities is actually his ability to come out and say what he thinks and criticise other people. He criticised JB Holmes at the Open Championship, and he did so Bryson DeChambeau. Bryson wasn't very happy about it, and of course called out Brooks for the criticism. And Brooks felt, well, you know what? I'll go confront me about it, say it to my face, and he did exactly that. And you know, it's funny enough. I've just realised this that you know Bryson DeChambeau has decided to change his image. He's obviously been drinking you know ten protein shakes a day in the gym 15 hours a day, he's bulking up and becoming a muscle, muscular figure. And this has come ever since he was confronted by Brooks Kepka. A coincidence? <laughs> I think not. <laughs> I, I was going to comment I think, on that. I think Bryce exactly. fears a match-up. Uh, yeah, I love it. And, uh, yeah. So there we go. But ultimately, I think the bottom line is, all these <laughs> controversial stories, some of them are funny, some of them are more serious and, and whatnot. But I think it underlines the importance, this is more of, an, of a, a wider subject I want to bring up, it's the importance of having a proper golf media covering the game. Proper journalism, people who are willing to come out and criticise things and ask difficult questions. Unfortunately, the market for golf media has declined dramatically. There are fewer writers uh, there are fewer publications covering the game in any great detail. And now we're seeing the PGA Tours PR machine, uh, and all tours really, overtaking things and really dictating what we know and how things are presented. For example, you know, Patrick Reed had the, 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 obviously the incident at the Hero Challenge in the bunker, and the PGA Tour spun that a different way. We had you know, the PGA Tour official Slugger White coming out and almost defending Patrick Reed, you know, saying his character, he was such a gentleman. And then when we had the incident in, in, in the Australia there, you know, the PGA Tour had a, a video of Patrick Reed you know, signing a cap for a kid, making him out to be the reincarnation of Jesus, obviously very topical for the time of year, uh, which is just ridiculous, obviously. And then we had the incident where I touched on the gesture on the screen. The PGA Tour spun that as being an amusing thing to share on social media. So they are controlling the narrative here, and that's a dangerous thing where with fewer journalists, with fewer publications, the difficult questions are not being asked of the players and of the tour. And these controversial stories, whether it be rules, whether it be ethics, whether it be player behaviour, we need to have proper accountability. Otherwise, these things will go rampant and unchallenged. And I do not think that's going to be a healthy thing for the game. It's a very real danger that in a few years' time, the only people who will actually be covering the game are the PGA Tour themselves. And... That's a dangerous thing, and with that, we'll see more controversies and less accountability. So that's a few various linked points there. But ultimately, there was a lot of controversial stuff, Carl. And uh, you know, it makes it interesting, as Fred touched on, but some of these guys really do need to have a look at themselves because some of the behavior this year uh, was, frankly, embarrassing. What a great you point, know, I wasn't, that was, I w- Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I wasn't going to comment on this. I was going to let you guys take all the credit and everything. But you mentioned some things. I have to defend some guys here. You know, I'm going to start with my man, Sergio. Sergio, I got you. Okay, don't don't worry. I mean, he, he had some frustrations. People keep say, saying that he caused damage to the greens and the bunkers, but he was really trying to help 
He was trying to reshape them by hitting them. You know, when they tap on them, he so was just golf design. He's he now into a, golf design. Is that what you're saying? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. He <laughs> okay. he was just a little frustrated, okay. frustrated at how they looked and all that. I mean, he and Gil Hans and Tom Doak, uh, Corey Crenshaw. <laughs> yeah, he didn't like and that. So also, it happened in, in the Open Championship in July. That video that they have purposely pushed there, like he was like, tossing a driver in the direction of his caddy after a frustrating dive. No, he was just giving it to the caddy. Just catch it. Yeah. That was what it was. So, yeah. Sergio, don't yeah. worry. I got giving you. it to him. I, I'm just explaining. Yeah, I was explaining to everyone what happened. And with yeah. Webb, it wasn't drawing straws. I, I said last week the only player that Patrick Reed is going to be playing uh, is going to be playing with is Webb Simpson. I mean, all the other guys. Tiger was going to be like, okay, if if Patrick plays with me, I already have the gallery. There will be nobody watching the rest of the games. So no way. I mean, everybody would have been there. He has to allow everybody else there. And all the other big guys said, no, he's not playing with me. So Webb, you know, he's been the, the scapegoat with Bubba Watson before, so he had to be. It had to be. But, well, Carlos, but anyway. Just quickly, uh-huh. my theory is on that one. On Webb Simpson, I think Patrick Reed was paired with Webb and indeed Bubba in previous years because Webb has, what, about five kids? He's used to these kind of people. He's used to dealing with personalities and you know, immature individuals. So I thought maybe Webb was going to have a prayer session with him or something. You know, I thought maybe that was going to be the deal. But uh, well, but, no, he tried. You know, he kid, tried. I'm child, sure he children tried. experience that that counts too. Sure, sure he tried. But anyway, just two two controversies I was going to mention that we didn't mention there. Hank Haney uh, and his uh, great predictor show there about the he didn't know about the U.S. Women's Open being played that week or where it was being held, and then said about the name of the Koreans and all this stuff. You'll get everybody knows what happened there, and he got suspended. And also the 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 biochem controversy in the Korean. Uh, that costly bird that he had. So, you know, he got suspended also by turning and flip off the crowd and then slam his club into the ground. So anyway, those were two that I just wanted to quickly mention. All right. Now let's move on to number seven, the introduction of golf news, new golf's new rules. Uh, there's some mixed success there. So Kieran, can you take the first shot? Yes, indeed. As I touched on earlier, uh, this year we saw the introduction of golf's modernized rulebook. Uh, it was indeed one of the most, uh, well, supposedly, uh, some of the most revolutionary changes made to the rules of golf uh, in many, many years, decades, uh, from the RNA and the USGA. So a lot of changes made to the game in an effort to simplify it, uh, to make the game quicker, easier to understand, rules that are easier to apply, and to address some of the issues we see on the tour as well. So this affected both, obviously, regular club and amateur golfers and, of course, the guys playing elite amateur golf and, indeed, professional golf. Um, and, you know, it's, a, it's, it's actually fun to reflect on it now because I think last year uh, we were looking ahead to these changes coming in. Um, we were concerned about some of them and we thought there could be real issues. But I think, actually, as time has gone on, it's actually worked out better than I think many people thought it would. You know, there were always going to be some issues in the early going players who are are frankly ignorant and don't quite understand the rules and don't follow them properly at times. But I think time has shown the changes to overall be a reasonable change. Uh, ultimately, we, of course, early in the year we saw rules, uh, incidents involving Hao Tong Lee and Denny McCarthy. And this was to do with players um, 
being prohibited having caddies standing behind them to line up putts on the green. So caddies have to step away and the player has to reset his stance to continue. And, and that's a change I think people have always welcomed because there was often criticism of players who relied on their caddy to line them up over shots and this is a rule to try and address that. So there were some issues early on with players not quite understanding the rule. Uh, ultimately, it kind of went quiet throughout the summer as players obviously get used to it. We did see a remarkable story back in October at the Senior LPGA Championship where Leanne Walker was penalised 58 strokes over two rounds. She was not aware of the rule change, having not played for many years competitively, and she was penalised uh, dramatically after having her caddy standing behind her several times during her two rounds in that event at the French Lick Resort. So that was a, a noticeable issue. At the beginning of the year, there were doubts about players, you know, the new change to having players you know, dropping the ball from knee height rather than shoulder height. Some guys raised doubts about that, whether it be Jordan Spieth, Bryson Shambo, Rory McIlroy was another one who commented on that at the beginning of the season. It's still something that looks a little bit bizarre. Some of the players mocked it at the beginning of the year. You know, Ricky Fowler did it. Uh, different guys have done it. But again, it's another one. As time went on, people get used to it, and it's now never discussed. So I think you know, any change to rules, you know, obviously there will be some resistance because it's something different, something new to learn. As players have got used to it, then it's been fine. So I think on, to, on the tour level, changes made to the rules of golf have made a lot of sense and have actually been applied relatively well, and the players have got on with them. Uh, in terms of the, the regular game, it's an interesting story, and I think one that a lot of people have commented on has always been the having the flagstick in the hole when you're putting, which is now, of course, legal, and players have the option to have the, the pin in the hole, and there are certain players who have done it you know, for every single putt, whether it be Adam Scott or indeed Bryson DeChambeau, whose name's coming up incredibly this, this tonight. I've mentioned him about five times so far. I don't know why he's done nothing all year, but we're, we're talking about him all the time. But he uh, is another one who has done that. Other players uh, don't do it. And the reason, the thinking behind it was it would help to speed up the game. Um, but has it in reality? Well, you know, at, at golfshake.com, the company I work for, we polled our audience on Twitter, and 64% of them uh, responded to say that they have actually putted with the flag in the hole this year. So they've, they've adopted that change. So actually the traditionalists, which I would consider myself part of, are actually in the minority. So a lot of people have made that change. Now, has it made the game quicker? Uh, the evidence isn't quite there. Uh, people do raise doubts about that. As some, if you're playing a group, if you're in a four ball, maybe two guys want the pin out, other two want it in, it raises confusion, uh, you're taking the flag in and out all the time, that adds time to the round, um, and also there's potential damage to the hole, you're trying to squeeze your hand in and try and get the ball out of it, that's also been an issue that greenkeepers have raised too, so um, those rules, that, that remains a little bit questionable, I'm not quite sure the impact has been quite what they thought it was going to be. But I think generally, you know, there, there were some significant changes to the rules and many of the, the, the vernacular and words that we use. Obviously, we don't have hazards anymore. They're all penalty areas. Again, if you're a little bit of a traditionalist, that's a, a slightly questionable change. But in effect and in practice, I think for the most part, the rule changes have made a lot of sense, have worked relatively well. And considering it's been the first year you know, the rules, controversial issues haven't been there as the years progress, so people have got more used to it. And I think going into next year and beyond, then, so people are now, it's now part of the game, 
and it's become the norm and I don't see any real issue with it. So I think the rules issues, there were some at the beginning of the year, there always would be, but as time's gone on, it's improved. So the introduction of golf's new rule book, I think overall it has been a success, albeit I'm not too sure that the game has actually been quickened by the changes that, are, that were made. All right, Fred, what's your take? Yeah, I, uh, I'm almost exactly, I uh, had almost exactly the same thing as Kieran just said. I, I think the additions of the new rules have gone about as expected. Earlier in the year, Carlos, you remember, we were talking about a rules violation uh, because of the new rules. Almost every week there was at least one major faux pas that somebody committed because of the new rules. But um, there, there have been a few noticeable problems, but for the most part, everyone has accepted them and moved on. Does it make the game any faster? Eh, I don't think so. Does it make the game easier? No, again. But at least the USGA and the RNA were trying to make the game more user-friendly, and for that, they probably should be commended, although we don't like to commend the USGA for anything. <laughs> but um, they do. They are the people that watch these things, and they take it very seriously, and they are trying. So, um, you know, and for the most part, it's been working. Um, I guess that's about all I've got to say about it, Carlos. We we talked about the rules all year long, and, and it, it was one of the biggest stories of the year for sure. I never thought I'd live to see the day where Fred Alvader <laughs> would say, I, even I think, I think they should be commended. That that was incredible. I, I, I thank God we have it. We have it in record. It'll be there for eternity. All right. Number six is the PGA Tour's new compressed schedule. Fred, how did it play out? Well, you know, this whole season has just seemed to go like a blur. Uh, there seemed to be no time between majors, and they were stacked just one upon another. With the players and the FedEx Cup playoffs all thrown into an eighth-month window, um, the game has become a real athletic test for anyone, especially someone fighting an injury. Um, you know, being in shape and being a younger guy has never been more important than it is right now on the PGA Tour. We've seen uh, Jason Day, Justin Thomas, Brooke Kepka all battle injuries over the last uh, year and forced to miss majors because of no time in between to heal and get healthy. So, once again, I understand the need for this uh, compressed schedule and why FedEx demanded the tour in by Labor Day, but this compressed schedule puts a real strain on the players and the fans. But, guys, for us, man, starting, you know, we're going to start here in two weeks with the uh, Tournament of Champions and then go on to uh, the Sony and boom, 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 all of a sudden we'll be at the uh, – you know, we're going to be at the players and we're going to be at the masters and PGA and right on down the line. And it just goes so fast that uh, you, you can't really blink. You've got to stay involved. You've got to stay uh, on top of what's going on on the PGA tour week in and week out because the next major is always right around the corner. So, you know, maybe it's kind of like the fall schedule, you know, it'll probably grow on us and we're probably going to get used to it. But, uh, Next year, we're even going to throw in a uh, an Olymp Olympics in there. So it's even going to cram more stuff in there. So um, it, it's, it's, it's tough for these golfers. They fly all the, over the world. They're playing. The golf courses are hard. They swing harder. Uh, it's harder on their bodies. But 
like it or not, the compressed schedule is here. It's here to stay. So we got to like it, guys. Kieran, your take. Yeah, I think it's, it, Fred's correct there in terms of the intensity of the schedule and you know the, the amount of events of, of big events that are held within a very short period of time places a lot of emphasis on players, uh, their 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 training, their their fitness, um, all that stuff. And also, there's a danger I think for a lot of the other non-major events on the PGA Tour, they might find themselves a little bit shunned by some of the top players who need to take a break at some point. You know, if you only have you know two or three week, weeks, and effectively between the majors uh, throughout the season, then some events will be will be passed on. I know the PGA Tour has its regulations that dictate players have to enter events uh, every few years, but there are some you know historic events, whether it be the Memorial, whether it be the Colonial, um, that might find themselves in, in years to come, you know, potentially you know coming worse off because of how close they are to a major and players trying to find that off week to try and just get some respite, which really when you begin the season, as Fred touched on, you know, in March with the Players' Championship, you're right through until the end of July where it's just very, very intense, and then you're straight into the FedEx Cup playoffs. So there's this real five-, six-month window that is intense. But I think the problem beyond that is you have this very intense season, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But the golf season, as we all know, doesn't really end and effectively you know it and it, this i think is actually a problem for the game as a whole in terms of it's you need a reason to miss the game and if you're an avid golf fan you love watching golf all the time it's on tv every week there's always events on any tour it's great but for the regular average sports viewer you know eventually it becomes a little bit too samey there's just too many events now and i think there's far too much golf on television um on all tours you know, sure, it's great for the players. They have opportunity. There's a lot of money involved in it. Uh, but golf doesn't really have a defined off-season. And that is quite a unique thing in sport. All sports have that. End of the season, you have a, a three or four-month break, and then you come back. It allows you to have that time to reflect on the previous season, and it creates a distinction between the two, whereas what we have in golf is just one ends and the other one begins. And I think that actually diminishes the significance of a season. Um, you know, ultimately, we're talking here at the end of the year, end of 2019, and the reality is on the PGA Tour, we have already had 11 tournaments of the 1920 season. Um, so we're talking about guys who have won the FedEx Cup or they've been player of the year. Yeah, but we already have you know, a, a, real, a real chunk of the season, or next season, this year. And I just think that lack of distinction between the two is a problem for the game more generally, where we have, we have no time to miss the game. Uh, we just have too much. We're oversaturated with the game. And I think it, it's better for the game to have a distinction between seasons. It allows us to reflect on what had happened before and to project to the next year. It also allows the achievements of a season to actually become, to sink in more. So when Rory McIlroy wins all the PGA Tour events, wins the Tour Championship, wins the FedEx Cup, that's great, but when the next FedEx Cup begins a week later, it does feel a little bit, you know, it undermines it a little bit in my mind. So that's just my perspective, but in terms of the schedule, it is compressed, it is very intense. Um, I think the game would, would be better suited if the majors were more spread out. And actually, that's something I've always believed, even under the previous schedule. I think having the majors within a very narrow window isn't great because, you know, you, you look, 
at the Masters every year. The reason we anticipate that so much is because the first major. And now before you know it, they're over. Uh, we have no time to look, look ahead to the next one. And if they were more spread out over the over the 12 months of the year, then I think that would be better for the game overall. So, yeah, you know, it's a change that was made. It's going to be here to stay, as Fred touched on. Um, I do think the game has a kind of an existential thing to answer in terms of, you know, the line between seasons now is blurred entirely. And for me, it makes it harder to care about the end of season titles, the end of season accolades, when in reality, it's just a continuation year on year, uh, rather than having a clean break. So that's my perspective on it, Carlos. I can't agree more with you. I mean, uh, I'm even more lost. I don't know when something starts, when something finishes. I know the end of the year is now. I I don't know. I don't even know when things happen anymore. But let's move on. We are at the halfway point of the top ten. Now we're going to move on to our top five. And number five, you know, they say, they said at the beginning of the year, simplicity uh, with the key is going to be the key uh, to the changes of the FedEx Cup finale. I mean, they announced that there was going to be a change in the format, new scoring system that they call this FedEx Cup starting stroke that was implemented this year, the Tour Championship, that was a stroke-based bonus system related to FedEx Cup standing players. We'll start with the opening round with scores between 10 under to even par. That's what they call the next generation. It was supposed to make more drama, and more drama than Ryan's Hope and General Hospital combined. The the previous champion's price was up from 10 million to 15 million, and the previous FedEx Cup bonus pool was up from 35 to 60 million. Wow, I mean that was heartbreaking drama that we saw in the those playoffs, right, Kieran? What happened to one? I can't remember. It's uh, <laughs> so long ago, and obviously, you know, you, you, for for Carlos, you know. All the years we've done this show, I have always been a fairly vicious critic of the FedEx Cup. No, and you know, the thing is, no. Though, I used to be. No, I no, no. Wait, actually... wait, Kieran, Kieran, let me let me say something to everybody. If you haven't heard before, there's two things certain in this show: Fred Alvader criticizing the USGA, and mm-hmm. Kieran Clark not liking the FedEx Cup. That's just like death in yeah. Texas, right? Okay. Yeah, but essentially, going. yes. Oh, thank you. Yes, and uh, but you know, I'm going to be honest here. You know, I I used to the FedEx Cup used to occupy far too much of my mind. It was taking over my life. I became obsessed with criticising it for a long time. I couldn't sleep at night. I was drinking too much. <laughs> I was eating too much. It stressed me out. I was, I was having psychological problems over it. So you know, I actually a couple did of you, years. Did ago, you give up? Did you give up worrying about Colin Montgomery for for the FedEx Cup? Is that what you did? <laughs> Well, no, no, I have, I have retained that obsession. You know, I can't give it all, but no. But I did decide after a certain point that I would soften my stance on the FedEx Cup because nobody actually cares one way or the other. And that's kind of my perspective now. But that said, what, 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 was, what was that scoring system all about? I mean, that, they, they were saved by the fact that it went down to Rory and Brooks Kepka. That made it exciting because the scoring system makes a mockery of just the game. It's just, it looked ridiculous. 
it would create a, a blurred line between winning an event and, and not winning. I mean, a guy who had a lower score win the overall thing. It just, it just made no sense. And they were lucky that actually the best player uh, in the, over the season really won that. And it, 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 they're a clear winner out of luck more than anything else. Um, on, the, on the bright side, you know, the FedEx Cup, having fewer FedEx Cup events, in my mind, is great. I have none, but there's three rather than four, so we're going in the right direction. Maybe next year we'll have two, and then it could be eliminated entirely. So that's a positive. But you mentioned that the record-setting prize money and all this stuff. I mean, this is this is a, another issue. You know, $15 million to the winner, a $70 million bonus fund to all the players that were part of it. Oh, wonderful. You know, who cares? As I keep saying, it's just rich guys getting richer. I do not think it connects anybody on any level. Who wants to tune in to watch a multi-millionaire winning a few more million? And that's the ultimate motivation. The reason we love the Masters or the Open Championship is because it's about the trophy. It's about the prestige. It's about the history. Yeah, there's great financial benefits behind that, absolutely. But that's not the sole motivation. That's not what it's about. I don't think anyone's ever really bought the whole season-ending argument, the season title, the, the season-long race to the FedEx Cup, as you would put it. No one really buys that. I don't think anybody really cares about the money either. Uh, and ultimately, the higher the money goes, it's diminishing returns because these guys are getting richer all the time. And who really cares about that? Who, 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 how can we as regular people connect to watching Roy McIlroy win $15 million? I mean, Roy McIlroy could spend $15 million tomorrow and he still have... 200 million in the bank. I mean, it just it doesn't, doesn't connect with people. And I think there is actually a growing divide now between golfers, pro golfers at the highest level, and the average person. And this manifests itself in different ways. One is through the huge prize money and then a the huge bonus pool. And then, as Fred touched on, these appearance fees that players get for traveling internationally. It just gets to a stage where money, 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 money drives everything. And yet, it's a reality of life, and that's fine. These guys. You earn a living, and they, they work. They, they work hard to get that living. That's wonderful. All credit to them. But the reality is, I think it makes it harder to care about what they do because if money is the sole motivator, and with the FedEx Cup, that's what it is, uh, then that, for me, is not compelling whatsoever. I so say the reason we love the majors and the Ryder Cup, you know, even the President's Cup, is the fact that it's about something beyond financial riches. It's about going down in history, about doing something that actually matters. And I think it's a problem. So the FedEx Cup is something that we think of this entire year. Uh, it doesn't even register on any level whatsoever. I mean, I, I don't think about it. I don't think anyone else really thinks about it on any great level. The FedEx Cup's now been here for 12 years or so. Um, and in that time, I do not think it's grown in the public consciousness. Sure, it's good to see the players, good fields competing from the golf fan perspective, it's fun to watch from that point of view. But in terms of the FedEx Cup, in terms of the 15 million, in terms of the nonsense scoring system, in terms of what it actually means in reality, it means nothing. Apart from the only people who enjoy this and love it and embrace it are the players themselves and the banks that the players put their money in. That's it. Nobody else cares. I don't care. I've had a relapse thinking about this. Carl, she's not, she's not giving this to me as a, as a story. <laughs> Just pass this one over. The FedEx Cup remains a travesty. And hopefully, if one thing happens, Carlos, in the next decade, the 20s, it could be historic. If one thing happens, hopefully we see the FedEx Cup just drift away, drift away in the air, 
and it'll all have been just a bad dream. Well, Kieran, I, I think you, you, with with the way the internet shopping is today, places like FedEx, UPS, they are just getting richer and richer and richer. Um, these these companies are set up for this, and so they've got to spend marketing money. And what better way? It's working well for them with PGA Tour. Did you want to say something, Kieran? No, no, I, I just agree, agree with your point there. I think you're right there in terms of the, the benefit for these companies. is obviously very clear that the FedEx have put in a huge investment, obviously a, a massive amount of money for a long time now. So yeah. clearly yeah. there are benefits for them. But I just feel ultimately for the average viewer, I still don't think after all this time now that the FedEx Cup as an institution, as an event, as a concept has actually connected yeah. with people on any meaningful level. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of nice to see Rory McIlroy win it, though. I mean, it was kind of like capping off. I mean, he had such a consistent year this year. And for Rory, it was always, you know, we've always seen Rory kind of hit or miss. He'd have two or three great weeks, and then he'd disappear for a couple months. Then he'd come back and have another couple great flashes, and then, then he'd be gone for You know, Rory dedicated himself to be more consistent this year, and he was. Um, it was fantastic, and he capped that off with the FedEx Cup win, and then we're going to talk about it more later about the player of the year stuff, but but for Rory to cap off his year with that win. Now, the other part of that, Kieran, is, and I agree with you 100%, $15 million, that's just absolutely ridiculous. Jack Nicklaus, in his best year ever, won $330,000. I will never forget that number. Um, and, and these guys win more than that for finishing 25th. Um, you know, it's just it's just mind-boggling. When is too much too much? Uh, I've written a couple articles on this. We've talked about it on the show this year. Uh, I think I think it is pushing fans away. I think they see it as exorbitant. I think they see it as too much. And on the other side, then, for the players, they've got so much money, they don't have to go and play in these smaller markets. All they have to do is play in these big-time tournaments because the, the – uh, the, the, the purses are bigger. Um, they, if they win a major now, they get 20 or $30 million worth of endorsements, let alone a $2 million first-place check. The endorsement money is so great. So there's no inducement for them to go play in a Colonial or in San Antonio or you know some of the other smaller markets, the Quad Cities, um, the John Deere. So um, uh, it's creating it. You, know, you have it over there, Karen. You've talked about it many times that there are two European tours. There's, yep. there's the eight uh, Rolex events for the really top-notch European tour names that come back and play them, and then there's the regular tour for the so-so European tour players that maybe only have a $2 million purse and maybe only pay a $250,000 first-place check, more like what an LPGA tour event plays. But uh, I, I just see it as it's, it's over the top. Um, and uh, I remember when the first time a player earned a million dollars, and that was down in South America in the old Sun City Open. They paid a million bucks uh, way back there, and that, that was such a big deal that, then. Now you get $2 million for a first-place check in a major, or nearly $2 million. So it, the problem now is that the top players can cherry-pick, only play in the big-money events. Uh, the smaller market tournaments rarely get a top-ten player anymore. Or if they get one, uh, that's the all they get. 
So it's becoming the money is becoming an issue, not only for players cutting back, but also for fans getting turned off because they are the players are getting so much money, guys. Definitely, definitely, something's got to be done. But I, I, the only thing I see done is just they're going to keep increasing purses. So yeah, we'll see. More, but more, anyway, number yeah, number four. Brooks Kepka's dominance in the majors, and I, I think everything started when Brendel Chambly told him <laughs> that he wasn't tough enough and that, you know, that was a selfless, reckless uh, uh, diet that he was doing, uh, appearing in the Body Magazine. And after that, I think the rest of the world is like, why Brendel? Why? Now, <laughs> Brooks Kepka was the most dominant player in the majors, I think, for the second year in a row. So, Fred, how about that? He was only a couple bogeys away from winning all four majors in 2019. In all, he won the PGA Championship. He finished runner-up at the Masters and U.S. Open, was T4 at the Open Championship. He won two other events. One was the WGC and earned over $9 million in uh, prize money. He's ranked number one. No one else seems to be close to him right now. He has been sidelined this fall with a bad knee. Hopefully... It will be healed and ready to go when the calendar turns over and the Tournament of Champions is here in a couple of weeks. His performance in the last 11 majors can only be compared to what Jack Nicklaus or Tiger Woods accomplished at the height of their careers, maybe even Ben Hogan. In the last 11 majors, he's won four with two runners up and eight top tens. Uh, yes, the majors are the most important thing for him. He doesn't get excited about a regular tour event. Are we going to be able to witness his dominance in 2020? Well, I think it probably depends on his bad knee. This is the second injury issue he has had to deal with and probably not the last. Um, he's just bigger, stronger, better than everybody else out there on tour right now. Um, can he keep that up? Probably for another year or two. Like everybody else, injuries and age will probably get the best of him. Maybe he'll have enough money that the desire to practice and work maybe just won't be there. If you listen to him, he says he doesn't practice. I find that hard to believe. But uh, a guy doesn't just pick it up and play at the kind of level he plays without putting some effort into it somewhere along the line. So, um, guys, uh, Brooks Kepler was dominant in the majors, no question. Um, He won the PGA Player of the Year, uh, didn't get the PGA Tour Player of the Year. I'm going to talk about that more uh, in just a little bit here, but – um, he is he is the number one player right now, the clear number one, without any question. Kieran, what's your thought? Yeah, well, you know, as Fred touched on there, you know how consistent uh, Brooks was this year. Um, you know, the players only the only players who beat him this year in any of the four majors were Tiger Woods, Gary Woodland, Shane Lowry, Tommy Fleetwood. And uh, Tony Finau, they were the only players that finished ahead of him, just five players over four majors. That's just astonishing. Um, you know, Fred mentioned the fact he's won four of the last 11 majors. He didn't even play in the 2018 Masters, so he'd actually won four of ten he's actually played in, which is just a staggering number. And he does it in such a, a way where he makes it look easy, and only, only the best can do that. And how he's able to raise his game to such a level... Um, shows he has a mentality and a strength of character and a mindset that very, very few players have. And that's his ability to rise to the big occasions and to handle the pressure of that. He thrives in that environment. Again, as Fred mentioned, 
doesn't necessarily get motivated by the, the regular events. But when it comes to a major, when it comes to the events that matter, when it comes to the, the big titles and beating the best fields, he's a guy that wants to prove himself, and he's proven himself time and time again. He is one of the he has become over the past two or three years one of the defining defining players of this decade. Uh, coming from actually a relatively obscure position, it's been a stunning rise over the past couple of years. And but will the injuries halt that progress? Well, that's going to be the question. You know, we go back two years ago, had wrist surgery at the end of 2017. He came back from that brilliantly, of course, uh, in 2018, and now he has this knee injury. I mean, you know. Will that be an influence on him? And also, he's touched on before. You know, he doesn't really have the the passion for the game as such. You know, golf isn't really something he loves. He's not someone like Roy McIlroy or Tiger Woods, who golf's kind of that's kind of their life. That's all they've ever known. You know, Brooks is more or less an athlete who just fell into golf in many ways. At least that's what he likes to present himself as. Again, as Fred touched on there, I think his rather nonchalant attitude to the game is actually more of a, uh, a character than the reality. He clearly does dedicate himself very much to the game, and he clearly has a passion to be that good. Uh, he's a competitor, and a competitor is someone who will succeed in the big stage. So Brooks has been the, the defining player of the past couple of years. You know, It's funny, we look for the decade, really. You know, Rory was kind of the player of the first half of the decade. Then midway through, Jordan Spieth rose up, and then he's fallen away, and now Brooks is that guy. Going into next year, it's going to be fascinating to see whether Brooks can maintain that position, particularly in the face of a resurgent Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods, who on his day, you know, in terms of skill, in terms of experience, in terms of his mentality, you know, Tiger's still the best player in many ways, and uh, you know, Brooks will have a big challenge next year uh, to maintain his position given the quality that's rising up. But his success in the majors has been remarkable. His dominance has been unprecedented in recent years, and I mean, Brooks doesn't also have a lot of fans. He's not necessarily the most engaging or warmest character, but you have to admire his success. It has been stunning. All right, and the Brooks was the most dominant player on the majors, but the most consistent player all year long was Rory McIlroy. He played the most consistent golf of his life and earned him the FedEx Cup and the Player of the Year award over Brooks. So, Kieran, what's your take on that? That that is our number three news of the year. Well, for several years now, we've been wondering when when will the real Rory McIlroy step up and 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 he has done this year i mean he touched on there the most consistent year of his life i think week in week out throughout the entire season nobody played better golf than roy mcelroy and uh, i think the stats bear that out you know he had he played 19 pga tour events last season he finished in the top 10 and 14 of them he led the scoring average as he touched on he won the fedex cup when he saw brooks kepka there he won the Players' Championship, a huge win against arguably the deepest field in the game. He won the Canadian Open with that wonderful 61, one of the best rounds you'll ever see. He won the Tour Championship. He's later won the WGC HSBC Champions. Of course, the caveat is he underperformed in the majors, and none more so than in the Masters, and then, of course, in his homecoming Open Championship at Portrush, where he missed the cut despite that valiant Friday round. So that was the, the, the negative to his season. But over the year, he, we saw Rory back to his best. And you almost take for granted how good he actually is and, and how long he's done it now. You know, Rory came onto the tour in 2007. You know, he first won on the PGA Tour in 2010. 
won his first major in 2011. So it's been more or less a decade now where Rory has been a permanent fixture in, in the elite of the game. And now in his 30s, he's now, I think he's been motivated by having Brooks Kepka, the guy to actually shoot down. And I think that kind of back and forth between the two of them is a potentially fascinating dynamic going into next year. Uh, but McElroy, you know, to, for, for me, when he plays to his best, I still believe he can do things that no other player can do, uh, particularly off the tee. Um, when he puts well, when, he's get, when, his, when his wedges are on, he can dismantle golf courses unlike anybody else. And I think when you have you know, Kepka, you have Woods, and you have McElroy as probably the three best players in the world right now, they all do things in a slightly different way and as, as three protagonists for the game going into next year, given their relative, their various CVs and their success and their majors and their different ages and experiences, it makes it a very fascinating dynamic into next season. But for me, Rory McIlroy, he played the best golf in 2019 consistently. I don't think there's any question of that. Did he do it in the majors? No. And that is a negative. And that's why people will perhaps under underrate what he's done uh, this year. But I think in terms of his scoring average, this consistency, he's done things that he has, hadn't done before. He's never played this consistently well. And I think going into next year, I think, you know, Fred touched on Brooks being world number one. I think Rory has him in his sights, and uh, I think he will do his utmost to catch Kepka very early on. If Brooks has not come back in a new year in good form, and I think it won't be very long until Roy McIlroy is the world number one again because I do not see his form abating any time soon because I think he has a, it's a tougher Rory now. And I think um, in many ways the way what happened at Port Rush will be the making of him in many ways. He will not go through that experience again. I think that will harden him up and I can see him. It's about time Rory won a major. And you know what? I'm going to say it. It's going to happen next year. He's going to win a major. I'm not saying which one he'll win. But I think Rory will win a major and become the world number one in 2020. Okay, since you're giving away some of the things that you're expecting for 2020, I am expecting him and Brooks Kepka to be really there on the final pairing of many tournaments. And uh, it would be great for golf. And if Tiger Woods can join them, that would be amazing what's going to happen. And I have to agree with you. I've always, always said it, Rory McIlroy, when his mind is on the, on the golf course and he's straight, oh, man, that he is the closest thing to the best player in the world. So, Fred, what's your take on this year for Rory McIlroy? Well, after Kepka was named the player of the year for the PGA, it was consensus that it also garnered the same honor for the PGA Tour. But if you compare the consistency, Rory McIlroy exhibited all season long plus his wins at the Players and the FedEx Cup, the Tour pros decided Rory should be named the Tour's Player of the Year. You know, it's kind of a popularity vote among the players. Did this say something about the popularity of Kepka over Rory among Tour pros? Well, Kepka probably turned a few people off over the course of the year when he said he didn't practice that much, and regular Tour events really didn't mean that much to him. Just the majors. That statement goes back to the topic number five tonight, are the pros earning too much money? Regular tour events with their million-dollar purses don't mean nearly as much as winning a major with a 20 or $30 million endorsement money setting behind there, plus the acclaim as a major champion. We have seen in the past Ben Hogan, Jack Nicholas, Tiger, concentrating solely on the majors. 
with the compressed schedule, the importance of the majors, Kepka is right to focus on them. Whatever he's doing, keep it up. But for Rory, if we can develop this Rory and Brooks Kepka rivalry going forward, Carlos, we've talked about it uh, all through the fall here. You know, after the after the FedEx Cup, when those two were battling, this is exactly what we need to see. And Kieran, I agree with you. When Rory is playing well, you know he is a joy to watch. And I said it earlier at the end of last year, earlier this year, if he would get away from that high draw and hit a few more cuts uh, with that driver, it would help him tremendously. He has done that. He's learned to hit a little cut with his wedges. He learned that from Tiger. And so this has just been, you know, it's been a really great, consistent year for Rory. This is the kind of thing we've been looking for from him. And if we can develop a, a Rory and Brooks kept the rivalry, I think that's going to be good stuff going forward, guys. And wait to see that. Now, number two, we're getting there to number one. What would be number one? I don't know, but we'll see pretty soon. Number two was the dramatic last whole heroics, like let's drop the mic here by Sam Pedersen to help Europe reclaim the Solheim Cup. So, Fred, how about that unforgettable Solheim Cup back in September? Well, it was one of the most exciting team events uh, I've ever seen. The Europeans did a magnificent job of competing against a much stronger, on paper, American team. What they pulled off in the singles on Sunday was absolutely amazing. I watched every match on Sunday. I can't wait until the song comes to Toledo in 2021. In our preview show, you know, I said that the, the U.S. team would, would dominate. They'd run away, even though they were playing in Europe. Uh, you know, it just wouldn't happen. But both you and, and, uh, and Kieran said that the Europeans would win, and uh, by golly, they did. So, you know, good for them. Um, you know, it was just a, a fantastic event. Um, and then Suzanne Pedersen making that putt to, you know, the last match out, the last putt, the last putt of her career. Um, it just doesn't get any better than that. Um, both captains did a phenomenal job. Um, the Europeans are going to have uh, Katrina Matthews come back. Um, you know, Julie Inkster says she's done. They're going to get somebody else for the Americans. But, uh, the Solheim Cup, it was just, it was great, great theater, uh, great, great sport. It, it, from the team matches all the way to the singles, uh, every match was, was tightly contested. Um, they're just, uh, it, it just was a joy to watch, guys. I, I can't remember anything that I've ever watched that I enjoyed more than that, unless maybe just watching the Masters every year. But, but watching the Solheim Cup last, uh, last year was, uh, was phenomenal stuff. What's your take, Kieran? Yeah, I think um, if it wasn't for the soon-to-be-revealed and unveiled mystery number one story, I think this would be the best event of the year. And actually, in terms of the drama and the excitement, it probably was. Um, I mean, just an unbelievable event from start to finish. And I think it was, it was close throughout. I mean, there wasn't a single stage after any session where one team was more than one point ahead of the other. Um, and then going into the final day, they were tied on eight points each. Um, so it could not have been any better. And the final session, you know, going down to the end with Suzanne Peterson, as, as Fred touched on there, I mean, you couldn't write a better script. 
Um, it was just an unbelievable event. I mean, it could not have gone any better. The excitement, the quality of play was, was superb. The, the crowds were fantastic. And for me, what I like about the Solheim Cup crowds are they're very enthusiastic, they're very supportive, but you don't get the animosity that you get in the Ryder Cup, uh, which I think can be a, a downside to that event where I'm not a fan of the heckles, I'm not a fan of the boos, I'm not a fan of the some of the negative stuff you hear. But the Solheim Cup, to me, it seems to be a much more friendly atmosphere. Yeah, they're enthusiastic and they're supporting their team, but you don't get that same you know, vitriol that you do in the Ryder Cup. So the Solheim Cup for me uh, this year, that is as good as team golf, team match play golf can possibly get. It was a wonderful exhibition for the women's game and for golf generally. Um, you know, Glen Eagles, you know, it looked great on TV. The weather, for the most part, was actually very good, um, especially in the final day with the sun shining. It just made it a wonderful setting. And, I mean, the matches were, most of them went to the end as well. I mean, the amount of singles matches that went to the last two holes, that was incredible. And that just added to the drama because it went right down to the wire. And you couldn't, you just couldn't, there was at no point could you really definitively say that team was going to win because it was so up in the air until the last few minutes when Bronte Law, you know, won her match and then Suzanne, you know, moments later holding that putt in the last, you know, what nerve, what pressure and, you know, she showed her major champion class and ultimately validated a, a somewhat controversial captain's pick from Katrina Matthews. So a wonderful event, a great exhibition, one that I will never forget, you know, seeing, you know, it was just a, in terms of entertainment and excitement, for me, looking at not just this year, but the decade as a whole, I think in terms of a, a team match play event, you have Medina 2012 Ryder Cup, and then you have this. They're the two that stand out most of all, and they would be in my top ten, possibly top five golf events from the last ten years as a whole, because you can't beat that drama. And when you have a match like this, it's close and exciting and competitive, great play, team match play is, uh, is I think the most enthralling thing to watch in golf when it's like this and it's never had a better advert than what we saw at the Solheim Cup no, it was um, a joy and, and one that we will remember for many, many years to come Oh, definitely. To me it was the best Solheim Cup ever played and it was not only about the drama there was gamemanship, gamesmanship that uh, was lacking, or maybe Suzanne Patterson that was so much uh, <clears throat> evil on the previous one. I, I remember uh, on that Sunday single match between Nelly Quinn and Caroline Head was when Nelly had that 30-foot putt uh, to have the hole in Corda. He had a good putt. It was just he left hanging just on the edge. The ball stopped and almost instantly Hadwell gave Corda the putt by walking over, picking up the ball and tossing it back to her. Sure, it's unclear, you know, under the rules of golf that it's technically allowed. We shall out 10 seconds for the ball on the lip to drop into the hole. But let's chuck it off as a gray area and applaud that A-plus gamemanship uh, here from the European team, especially from Hadwell. But definitely... Uh, Susan Peterson. I mean, that is what type of hypothetical moment that can fuel hours of practice. You're there in the practice range, on the green, a single pot to win the match, clinch the title, and bring and bring glory to your team. That is exactly 
what Susan Peterson did. did. She didn't blink when faced with that very real challenge in the Solheim Cup there at Glen Eagles. And then she promptly decided it would be her final competitive stroke. Her mere inclusion of Katrina Matthews' European side was a point of debate entering the matches in Scotland. And I remember saying, you know, I know she gave birth to her first child in August, took 19 months off for maternity leave, made only one cut in three strokes place before Matthew tapped her as a capstan pick. But hey, she is and she was to the women's team what Ian Poulter is to the European Ryder Cup team. Doesn't she doesn't have to be playing good or not playing in two years? She can come and play the best golf of her career just because it's the Solheim Cup. I mean, that situation that she was there was simple as Peterson faced that eight foot birdie attempt on the 18th grid. Green, I mean, she misses, and Alex was assured, Marina Alex was assured of a half point that would let the Americans retain the cup, make, and the trophy return to Europe. Peterson rolled that putt, and the ball, as the ball was disappearing into the hole, she dropped her putter and raised her fist in celebration. Moments later, she ride that competitive high of a career that included two major titles, and she called it quits. That's the drop-the-mic moment. Rarely are athletes in any sport afforded that opportunity to walk away in top, in doing so, she not only solidified her hero status inside the European team room, but also etched an indelible moment into a Solheim Cup lore forever. And definitely, I can't wait to see the next one come up in two years. So that was number two, Europe reclaiming the Solheim Cup. Now, number one, the mystery number one news of 2019 in golf. Who would have known that it was Tiger Woods turning back the clock and winning the Masters? Kieran, how about number one? Well, I mean, when you, when you reflect on not just moments in golf, moments in sport over the past 10 years, this is going to be in the conversation for the number one spot because as a story, this was staggering and it was almost surreal to witness. You know, at the beginning of this decade, we were thinking, you know, Tiger had come through the scandal. There were doubts about his fitness at that time. And golf has spent years trying to anoint his successor in the game. And it's never really been able to do so. You know, Rory McIlroy is probably the closest we've had to a, a Tiger in terms of his significance. But even then, it's not a comparison. And at the end of the decade, we felt Tiger was drifting towards a very sad demise where he would never come back to golf uh, he'd be remembered for his great stuff, but in many ways for what could have been a missed opportunity. His career, what it was, was squandered by his own actions, his injuries, and various other issues. And we felt he was, you know, it was going to be a very sad footnote to what was a remarkable, you know, career for many years in the game. And now he came back, of course, at the end of 2017. Surprisingly. He slowly built up form in 2018, winning again on the tour, contending in majors. We saw it at the PGA at Bell Reeve when he finished second there behind Brooks Kepka, winning the tour championship last year. I mean, we came into this year realizing that Tiger was a serious player again. He was not just going to be back competing, he was potentially going to be a major champion. And to happen at the Masters after 14 years without winning there, and the manner that he did coming from behind. 
against a very strong leaderboard, Carlos, and we forget this, where he beat the best. Dustin Johnson, Brooks Koepka, Xander Schofley, Jason Day, Tony Finau, Francesco Monari, Cantley, Ricky Fowler, John Ram, they were all in the mix. They all had a chance to win. And Tiger, with that experience, that will and determination and that ability, he overcame them all. And, of course, the defining moment was really on the 12th hole where so many guys just blinked at the crucial moment. And Tiger took his opportunity from there. You know, he came back, he birdied 13, he birdied 15, the birdie on 16 was the one that really clinched it. And then the 17th was a really difficult tee shot for him through the years. Hit the best drive he's ever hit, probably, under pressure. And and that was him from there. Obviously, the last hole was a little bit of trouble, but did close it out in the end. And the scenes we saw on the 18th at Augusta this year the atmosphere, his reaction, the outpouring of just, it was almost like an exercising of demons through the years. Uh, He had shown his family, he had shown all the fans, he's shown the fellow players, he's shown himself most of all that he could still do it. I mean, two years ago, Tiger said at the Champions Dinner at the Masters, and he missed it that year, he wasn't sure if he was ever going to come back. We saw the DUI, all the surgeries. Tiger, we've seen so many different comebacks. The apparent chipping at Yips. I mean, this guy was done. He was finished. And somehow he's revived himself and come back as one of, if not still, the best player in the world on his day. And he showed that Augusta. It was something we'll never forget. I mean, it was just as a dramatic sporting occasion. You you all should remember where you were when Tiger won the Masters for another time, won his 15th major. And as Fred touched on earlier in the show, suddenly the question becomes, can he somehow go further than that and match Jack or even surpass Jack you know, it's, it's certainly it's possible uh, time will tell, injuries are always going to be an issue for him, you know, age time, you know what can happen but the way I look at it is Carlos, the way I'd always sum it up and we've seen Tiger play some great golf at the end of this year, whether it be the Zozo Championship or indeed the President's Cup it suggests to us that he's going into next year, uh, still going to be one of the top players and still with a chance to win more majors, but for me whatever happens going ahead, whether he wins five majors, ten majors, or no majors. In some ways, it doesn't really matter because we had this. We had the 2019 Masters. And for me, that Tiger Woods now has the closing chapter that his career deserved. You know, Jack Nicklaus had it at the 86 Masters. He had that closing chapter, that bookend to say, this is a beginning, a middle, and an end. And he won his final major in the most dramatic circumstances. Tiger now, whatever happens, he has that positive ending chapter, whereas for many years it had been looking like a very sad tale. Now it's a tale of redemption, it's a tale of resurgence, it's a tale of Tiger coming back and just you know, being better than he's been for a long, long time and just doing things, that, showing this new generation that he's still the man. And now we're going to see him potentially go forward competing against this group of players he ultimately directly inspired I mean you can't get a better storyline than that going into 2020 so you know Tiger began the decade in a negative fashion the scandal had just erupted he came back to Augusta that year in 2010 you know a lot of negative headlines and for much of this decade Tiger's story had been a negative sad one but it ended in the brightest spot possible and for him and for the game it couldn't have gone any better Tiger has that closing chapter, but you know what? I think the postscript, the epilogue of Tiger's career, has the potential to be just as riveting uh, next year and beyond. But the 2019 Masters, Carlos, 
that was one of the great sporting events, and we will never, ever forget witnessing it. Yeah, just watching the gallery again, following him, uh, that was just amazing. And like you mentioned, the important thing was who was on that leaderboard? Who was he beating? I mean, he was the most consistent throughout that back nine where everybody else had ups and downs. He stayed through and went and went like he used to. But, Fred, how about number one, Tiger Woods turning back the clock and winning the Masters? Well, Tigers went the Masters in April uh, certainly transcends the game of golf. It is one of the greatest performances in sports history, without a doubt. Uh, you can go back, uh, maybe the only thing even close in golf is Hogan returning to win the uh, 1951 U.S. Open. Um, you know, just, uh, just phenomenal stuff. By any measurement, Tiger Woods had a fantastic year. In 12 starts, he had one win, four top tens, and earned $3.2 million. That's a career year for most golfers. At the age of 43, he won a major, the Masters, for the fifth time. He didn't fare as well in the other majors this year, but he already has a win for the 2019-2020 season by winning this fall in Japan. And, of course, he put on that phenomenal display just last week at the President's Cup. Guys, Tiger's turning 44 in a few days, and his prospects for catching Jack Nicklaus's 18 majors is looking much better right now than at any time over the past 10 years. Can't wait to see what new chapters he writes in 2020. Oh, definitely. I mean, as he stormed to his fifth green jacket, many thought on the obtainable 15 major championship. I mean, you have to still get butterflies thinking about what he can do, what crazy deadlines we're going to get in, into our into our minds to write about him what is going to be having Tiger Woods on his career coming up what a magical finish it was if this is it, his last one but I'm pretty sure that every other tournament that he plays, everybody in all eyes will be on him in 2020 and moving forward with that, we wrap up the top 10 news in golf for 2019 Hope you enjoyed it. Let us know your thoughts about it. Write to us. But anyway, now we're going to close the show with our final thoughts on 2019 and looking forward to 2020. And I'll be real quick. To me, 2019 was an amazing year. We already talked about the top 10 um, stories. I think that also the dominance of Jin Young Ko on the LPGA Tour Kieran was also mentioning when we submitted the, the news uh, of 2019, but didn't make it the joint venture now for the LPGA and the LED. That is something that I'm looking forward for 2020, seeing how it's going to unveil and what it's going to bring. Uh, there's a lot of question marks, but uh, I think it's going to be good for both of the, of the organizations. Uh, so I'm looking forward to see what is going to come. Like I said before, Brooks Kepka, Roy McIlroy, Tiger Woods, but we already know there are so many other good players coming up and coming that can join them at the top. Justin Thomas is just as informed, and he's another great player. Dustin Johnson, we already know what he's capable of. John Ram is knocking right there at number three. So there's so many players that are just below them that are going to make – this next year, what I think is going to be the best ever in men's golf. 
if it still plays out as it should be. And, uh, that's my, my, my biggest thoughts for now. Uh, Kieran, I'll turn it over to you. What's your final thoughts in 2019, and what do you look forward to 2020? Well, as we've obviously discussed this evening, and you know the stories that even make the top ten, you touched on there, Yin Young Ko, what a year she had, staggering. Even the wonderful victory of Hinako Shibuno at the Women's British Open at Woburn, one of my favourite events of this year. That was just captivating. I think it would be my top three events of this year, uh, behind the Masters and the Solheim Cup. Um, one of the many great stories this year. You know, this season, you know, the end of a decade is obviously a time of reflection. Um, I think we've seen the next generation in golf emerge over this decade. But at the same time, you know, Tiger is the one who inspired those guys, and he's still relevant today. And that is a wonderful capstone to have going into next year and beyond. So you mentioned, obviously, Rory and Brooks Kepka and Justin Thomas and John Ram. They're the guys that you see as being the, the main threats next season. But even beyond them, and look at the young players that are emerging on the PGA Tour, whether it be Colin Morikawa, Sunjay Im, or Victor Hovland, or Matthew Wolfe. And, of course, in the European Tour, we have Scotland's very own Robert McIntyre. All these players are emerging, and they will only get better uh, with more experience and, and more time under their belt. And, and that's another exciting group of players to follow. So, I mean, we have we have so many great names in golf right now that are playing well, and the potential is there, as we see every year, to have another great season. I mean, this year, in terms of the storylines, couldn't have gone much better, and hopefully we see more greatness next season. But it's been a fascinating year for golf, uh, a watershed one, really, uh, the decade ended in the most remarkable fashion with Tiger re-emerging as, as one of the top, top players in the game. And seeing him competing alongside these guys as an equal uh, next year uh, is going to be fascinating. Um, so I, I can't wait for 2020, Carlos. I think it's going to be a great year for golf. There are obviously questions with uh, some of the issues in the game, as we touched on earlier, about the sports gambling, about the rules, about the amateur golf, about the LET and the LPGA. All this stuff is there as a subplot. But the money in the game, the scheduling, the season, how it's laid out, this apparent divide, as Fred touched on, between players at the top and those in the middle and the bottom, uh, how will that play out in the years to come? But at the top level, when it comes to the elite players, we have an amazing crop of talent right now and personalities. And I'm looking forward to seeing that continue to flourish uh, next year and beyond. So, wonderful year, and it's been a pleasure to uh, relive it uh, with you guys this evening. Fred? Any final thoughts on 2019 and what to look forward in 2020? Well, for me, it seems that this year has gone faster than any year I can remember. We have the makings of a true rivalry with uh, Brooks Koepka and Rory McIlroy. Throw in about 10 other top players, and 2020 should be another outstanding year on the PGA Tour. The Ladies European Tour and the LPGA joint venture should help the LET survive and also help the LPGA reach a wider audience in Europe. We didn't talk about the Champions Tour, but we had a different Charles Schwab Cup winner in Scotty McCarron this year, and a bunch of new guys heading to the Champions Tour in the near future. Amateur golf is stronger than ever, and golf resorts are flooded with golfers with money in their pockets wanting to play new golf courses. This is a very good time in the golf industry right now. I hope it lasts for a few more years, and guys, I'm looking forward to covering it next year with both of you on Back Nine Report. 
Well, back Niners, it's that time of the year again, so prepare to have the best time ever with friends and family. Have a sensational time no matter what you do this holiday season, and be sure to ring in the new year with excitement. We'll be thinking of you during this wonderful holiday season and wishing you lots of fun and excitement and a super fantastic year to come. From here, Kieran. Fred and me and the Back Nine Report. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to us. It's always our pleasure to bring you the latest on the world of golf. So looking ahead to 2020, happy golfing, everybody. Merry Christmas, everybody. Until next time. <laughs>